we've been here together practicing for, I guess, about a day now on this retreat. And I'd like to just take a little time to reflect on the nature of this process and what we might be exploring or encountering as we engage with it. In a way, it's an expression or an exploration, we could say, of what it means to be here. What does it mean for us to be here? What does it mean for us that we are here? And we could perhaps, and probably we ask ourselves the question, you know, like, what's going on here sometimes? Like, what on earth is going on here? Um, we might say that of our life, we might certainly say that about our retreat. Like, what's happening? What's all this about? Here we are. We've kind of arrived, appeared, turned up in this particular situation, so it seems. And in a certain way, yeah, we've arrived in this human existence. We've turned up, we've appeared, here we are. Not just the retreat, but our whole life. Our entering into this existence, the fact that we are alive is kind of curious, mysterious perhaps. This process that's going on between birth at one end, which we've all been through, or we wouldn't be here, and death, which none of us have been through or else we wouldn't be here. And so here we are. Here we are. And in this reflection, we might contemplate that, you know, we're born without necessarily choosing or planning or organizing that that should happen. Certainly, I don't remember sort of getting into any arrangements about that happening. It just seemed to have taken place at some point. And we would die without choosing when and where and how that happens, for the most part. And somewhere between that is our life, between birth and death. It's kind of curious, it seems to me, that life doesn't come with instructions. It would be really good if life had instructions. If it, you know, it's like we've got this amazing thing, but we're not quite sure how it works and what to do in order to get the best out of it. And so we mostly just go along with what everyone else seems to think is the way you do this. At least we chose to come here on retreat. So we could feel like we're sort of slightly ahead of the game. At least this, I hope, at least you chose to come here. You didn't accidentally wander into Guy House um, thinking it was something else. And they said, oh, sure, yeah, we'll give you a room or a bed or a cushion to sit on. I'm guessing it was intentional. It's hard to get here accidentally. It's quite sort of a hard place to find by accident. And so there's the sense of, okay, so what are we doing here? What's going on? There's a, a process that's taking place, we could say, where we're, we're placing ourselves into a context, into a container that can work on us. And we've been engaging in very consciously, intentionally in particular practices and engaging certain capacities of heart and mind in the cultivation and the development of attention, of sensitivity, of presence. And yet just this coming back to, oh gosh, we're here, engaged in spiritual practice, in the, the kind of the hopefully wholesome discipline of giving ourselves to something which we don't necessarily know where it's taking us. We're not even quite sure where we've started from. But here we are. Again, this is what it's like for us as human beings. This is what goes on. And what starts to happen, I think, quite naturally and appropriately, and in fact importantly, is we start to feel our life more keenly more deeply, we start to become sensitive to, conscious of, 
and aware of the impact of both what's happening around us, what's happening inside us, and how we are responding or reacting to all of that that's going on around us and inside us. And this is central to what we are involved with here, what we're engaged with. What's happening and how am I responding to it? That's the question of my life, really. The question of our life, I would suggest. What's happening and how am I responding to it? It's not easy, as I've commented and observed, and you know, to come here and be on retreat. If we were to describe to our friends or workmates or family members back home who've never been in such a situation, how it is for us here. You know, and we say that actually we, we got to the end of Saturday. It wasn't quite even the end. But you know, we'd been sitting around on these cushions for you know, 30, 40 minutes, maybe 50 occasionally at a time. Then we had to walk back and forth. It's just slowly didn't go. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. We were told not to go anywhere. Just then we stood around a bit, doing nothing, sat down some more, had some food. And then it all happened again. Sitting around, standing around, walking around, getting fed. At 7.30, I was exhausted. You know, our friends would look at us and go, what? How could that be? What's going on? Even I see a few people, you know, heading towards horizontal postures and... Just to say with that, if your body's not well, it's okay if you have injury, illness, or vulnerability to be in a more prone position. But one of the guidelines the Buddha gave to the, the, his followers, the ordained followers, the nuns and the monks, was that actually you're not allowed to give a Dharma talk to people who are lying down unless they're injured or they're ill. So I leave that for you to decide whether I'm allowed to continue. Um, and I'm really okay if you need to be there. It's, that's the point of it. If you need to be there, you can be there. But I think there's something about that invitation of respect for what's being engaged in and what's being offered here. Um, and it's not personal, as I say. It's, it's, like, it's one of the rules. Not that I'm a member of the ordained community, but in that sense, I feel the spirit of it very clearly in what I'm doing here and what we're doing here together. And so there's the sense of, um, you know, it's hard work. It, it doesn't need, you don't need me to explain to you the fact that that is so. You might be wondering why it's so, perhaps, because this should be an idyllic situation. Look, it's comfortable. People are basically friendly. There's good food, you know, after the, the many years in which the heating wasn't that great. Actually, the heating's great as well. You know, it's really warm in here. We have a state-of-the-art wood chip boiler. It's like wonderful, you know, guilt-free heating and plenty of it. How lovely. And yet still, it's really difficult, even though we don't have to do anything very much at all. But we've been encouraged not to do very much at all. And it's not easy. Because, of course, although it looks a bit like this could be paradise, this might be just, wow, going on a meditation retreat. Oh, I'm so lucky. I'm going to get to have nothing to do and all of that. And then we get here and we realize, oh, my gosh, this situation requires me to face my life. And it does. Absolutely, not accidentally. It asks us to face our life. Because what's going on here isn't, some kind of meditation retreat, craftily abstracted from the rest of our existence and sort of sitting in a little bed of cotton wool and flowers. No, it's our life going on right here. We haven't retreated from our life, in case that's thought what you thought you might be doing. We've simply come on retreat as a way of stepping out of all the ways we escape from our life. And right here, we're in it as fully as we're going to be, most likely. We're asked to meet this life. And of course, what we notice, what we see, what stands out, and it's obvious, is that sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes that's excruciatingly difficult for us. Not always, not for everybody, but for most of us, and certainly some of the time for everyone, I would imagine, it's not that easy 
to be here. We look at this condition we're in, human existence. Things are not always the way we want them. Have you noticed that? Have you looked at this wonderful guy house place? And it is wonderful for sure. And noticed the ways it could be improved? Just a few? One or two? Anybody? You don't have to put your hand up. I certainly do all the time. So, you know, I, I know, oh, this could be improved. This could be improved. And we kind of have a mind maybe that does that. Or we might just notice not so much the improvements, but mm, that needs improving. I'm not sure what. Or There's a way in which we can look around and see that. You know, it could be done differently. But more fundamentally, we actually look at what's going on inside me, my experience. And we say, oh, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes my knee hurts or my shoulder aches or my head feels kind of thick and fuzzy and sort of, or feels buzzy and whizzy and you know, whatever we might encounter. It can be dullness or restlessness, boredom, something. It's boring. Oh my gosh. You've got to watch the breath some more. The same breath. This, like it's been going on all day. It's been going on all my, Why am I watching the breath? Boring. Of course, the breath is only boring until you have a moment to contemplate where when that out-breath goes out, one day, you know, that'll be it. Out-breath will go out, and there won't be an in-breath that comes in. And most, for most of us, when that out-breath goes out, it won't go out with a little sign on it saying, this is the last one, enjoy it. It'll just go out. And the in-breath doesn't come in, and that's it. We're not there to notice that the in-breath doesn't come in. So breathing is actually quite interesting from that point of view. It's like, hmm, I better watch and see, because is there going to be another in-breath or not? It's a big question. I know I'm not suggesting you get too concerned about that, um, but just as an alternative perspective to, oh, here it is, more breathing. It's like, oh, breathing, wow, this, this, is, this, is, this is what's keeping my life going. This is worth a little attention. And we may, of course, feel... Anxiety, at times, fear, loneliness, grief, anger, confusion, various forms of distress. These things we encounter as human beings on a retreat, not unusual, not unnatural. And again, this is our life going on here. And as, you know, I was struck and touched and felt quite I think what the right word is, move, but also just, I felt the weightiness of our lives, just reading through as you've all filled in your forms with the situations you're in, and just the, the regular occurrence within the information that you've shared with me of things when I read them and think, oh wow, that's hard, you know, and, and we know these things in our lives that we encounter, you know, loss, bereavement, separation, we have health challenges, things that are acute, things that are ongoing. Things that might get better, things that won't get better. We have these things going on in our bodies. We have things going on with our minds equally. Stress, anxiety, depression, various mental health challenges. Again, some that may be acute, some that may be ongoing, some that may improve, and others that are probably a condition we're just going to have to learn to live and work with because that's What's here in our life for us? You know, and there are relationship difficulties we have. And then we have the difficulties if we don't have relationships. We don't have a relationship. Or there's the, you know, the, the stress of work and then the, the stress of not having work. And it's all hard. All those things. No one of those things. And most of us know more than one of them in our lives at some point. No one of those things is easy. So there's something about just really letting ourselves turn towards this. Not taking the presence of such things as somehow meaning something is wrong here. Or that we're somehow doing things wrong. Because it's so universal that we experience such things. It's part, it seems, of what life involves.
And hopefully we begin to see that more clearly when we're here. Because our ability to avoid and turn our attention away from that is somewhat reduced. It's not taken away completely, that's not possible, but it's somewhat reduced. We tend to see it a little more and feel it a little more clearly. And it's not to say that's all that's here. Of course, there's beauty, there's delight, there's sweetness, there's many expressions of kindness we might equally be touched with in a situation like this or in our lives. Many good things. But often we notice our attention and our sort of our heart, mind, life systems kind of orienting towards constricting around that which is difficult. And it's, you know, it's, it's a natural phenomena that we do that. It's not necessarily conducive to happiness and well-being, but it's a natural phenomena. Basically, we're wired up for survival. Survival doesn't really care whether we're happy or not. It's a good thing to get. Survival doesn't care whether you're happy or not. You know, sustain the gene pool, maintain the species, don't worry about the workers. That's basically it. From a survival point of view, it's really important to notice very quickly if something's going to eat you. Because if it eats you, that's it. It's all over. You're, it's not going any further for this particular piece of the species. It's not that you have to notice that there's some food straight away. Because if it's an apple, it'll be there. You don't see it straight away, it's okay. You get why that says to our system, we have to notice very quickly everything that's wrong. And we're not quite so wired up to notice what's actually okay. And the biology is there to show how that works. The science is there that recognizes that process. So it's important to see that this is a way we react to one dimension of our experience, one aspect of our life. It's not talking about all of our life. And the Buddha spoke of this. He used the word dukkha, he talked, which is, I think, most elegantly translated of the many ways it's translated as that which is hard to bear that which is hard to bear that we don't find easy and yet of course just as we encounter these things that are challenging and difficult for us there is that within us as human beings which also has a sense of possibility for not feeling oppressed or subject to so many difficult conditions and limiting, constructing factors, it seems, in our lives or in our world. And this is something healthy and important and necessary for us, but it's not necessarily aligned with wisdom, which means we don't necessarily understand. And culturally, we seem to be remarkably, as a collective society, remarkably lacking in understanding as to what really leads to well-being and happiness, to fulfillment, to peace, to satisfaction. And mostly we, we kind of live within a paradigm and a framework of what I think we could reasonably call a false hope that suggests that the happiness, the peace, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that we look for, that we long for, that we at some level in our hearts know is possible for us, even if we're not quite sure how. That this will come through getting somewhere else, through having something else, to be, through becoming someone else other than where we already are, what we already have, and who, and what we already are expressing or are, we could say. The idea of getting somewhere else, something else, becoming someone else, leads us into a process, an ongoing cycle, an unending perpetuation of being in conflict with and out of balance in our life. We seek comfort, security and to avoid pain. To experience pleasure. These are basic drives. They're natural. They're, as I said, biologically wired in for survival. 
But what we notice is that we're driven by a mental process that pushes us always to try and fix, change, control, manipulate out of circumstances and equally ourselves. The idea that we'll come to a point through doing this where we can stop. It's like if I just get everything to be the way I want it to be. If I just get everyone to be the way I want them to be. You can notice the problem with that one. Try and get one person to be the way you want them to be. Just try that. Just try it for a little while. You realize a lot of unhappiness for both of you. But try and get yourself to be the way you think or want, expect yourself to be. Likewise, it doesn't really work for us. And yet this urge is strong within us. And we might notice the way we try and yet fail to control what's happening. Getting our mind to be quiet, to stop doing the things we find uncomfortable, to pay attention to the breathing, just Reasonable request, don't you think? It's not that harmful. It's not that, you know, problematic or complicated. Surely I can just get my mind to do that. But no, that's not what happens for most people. And we tend to respond to this by putting pressure on. (coughs) Pressure on ourselves, pressure on others, pressure on the world. There's a beautiful story, I think, that uh, expresses quite well how that works out. And uh, it's it's given, as I received it, as as something that actually happened. Um, Whether it happened, I'm not sure. But that's how it came to me. And it's the transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. And it begins with a communication from the American ship saying, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the Canadians respond, I recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. You have the sense that there's a little bit of pressure being applied. Then you say, I'm bigger than you. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call. And it's, of course, a lovely and sort of amusing in a naughty sort of way and that we kind of maybe take pleasure at the embarrassment of the captain of the ship who receives the message. But there's a way in which it's also remarkably funny because this is what we do, isn't it? We demand things get out of our way when they can't. And there is no way that the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship. That's just not going to happen. The ship has to go around it or run into it. And our life is this way too. We need to accommodate the way our life is because our life cannot be different than it is because we shout at it or tell it it has to move out of our way. It just doesn't work that way. We would like to control it, but we can't. This is one of the things the Buddha pointed out is why things are sometimes hard for us, hard to bear. We'd like to control. We can't control our body. We can't make it feel good when it's feeling bad. We can't make it feel full of energy when it's really sleepy in the meditation. We can't make it feel sleepy when it's full of energy at 10.30 and we'd like to go to sleep. It does what it does in so many ways.
we can't control the weather. That's kind of obvious. We certainly can't control our neighbours. They do what they do. Our neighbours here, our neighbours at home. It's interesting, isn't it? I said this morning, was it this afternoon, about this thing of, you know, we'd like to think we're all here not to disturb each other, but in a certain way. And we, we, of course, it's, it's wonderful that there's that sensitivity and respect, but at another, another level, of course, we're here to wake each other up. And one of the ways we are woken up is in the recognition of how quickly we get into a kind of a bit of a tangle with things going on around us that we'd rather weren't. And starting to see that, starting to recognize that, ah, maybe, maybe this isn't the way to resolve the situation. It's like this idea that somewhere else, when things have settled down or sorted themselves out, then it's going to be good. Did you ever have the thought in the meditation? Oh, if all this thinking would just stop. It's a thought that's having that thought. Just notice that. It's a thought saying, I wish all the thinking would stop or be quiet or at least be useful, peaceful, kind and friendly kinds of thoughts rather than annoying, frustrated, irritating or just pointless ones. And the sense of, oh, oh, it wouldn't be nice if the thinking just stopped. We imagine that's going to be the, the real thing. And then, of course, it might be the case at some point that the thinking does stop. And that might be nice for a moment or two, and then it's a little bit scary or strange. It's like, what's going on here? What if it doesn't start again? Of course, it already has by that point. And damn, okay, I didn't get that for very long, did I? Like we constantly tip out of where we are into the hope of something different or better. So many of us, that's what we're doing so much of the time. And it's exhausting to live like this. It's exhausting. And it doesn't come to an end. When I was a young man growing up in New Zealand and uh, kind of well, I have to now acknowledge was the kind of the, the rural backwater of the redneck South Island sort of um, region that I lived in and uh, wasn't entirely comfortable in, but didn't know anything different. Um, the basic social activity for young people, once you, well, certainly young men when you turned about 15, was driving around the local pubs and having a drink and thinking, oh, should we go to another pub and going to another pub and having a drink? And even though we weren't supposed to be in the pubs or drinking, the, the various authorities thought it was better that we were actually in the pub than doing the same thing somewhere they couldn't keep an eye on us. So it seemed to be all quite allowed. It was before driving and drinking was actually really socially unacceptable. It was illegal, but it wasn't socially unacceptable. Everyone did it. It was a form of socially sanctioned madness, just to say I'm not making it into the glory days. But what I started to notice, and it struck me with some real force at a certain point, when I guess I was getting into my later teens, maybe 17, 18, that we spent a lot of time sitting at the pub together saying, what a great time we had the last time we did this. Or at the last pub we visited. And what a good time we were going to have the next time we did this, like next weekend, or at the next pub we visited um, this evening. But never did we say what a great time we're having right now. And I certainly wasn't having one. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, actually, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not sure anybody's enjoying this. But we're all telling ourselves that it was good the last time, it will be good the next time. And right here, it's not always like unpleasant or miserable, but it's just kind of blah. In fact, that's a pretty good description of one's mind after too many beers. But... Um, but somehow we were maintaining a story that if we keep doing more of this, it'll get better or it'll be good. And it just never was. And that's a story that in our culture we are told and we tell ourselves in so many ways, in so many different forms. That although it isn't actually working out for me doing it this way, if I keep doing it and just do it a bit harder and better, then it will. Do you recognize that message? You know, if you could just earn more money, have more things, be better at this, get fit, get smart, get, I don't know what other good things we could get. 
then it's going to work for you. But if we're doing it from this place of trying to get to something or somewhere else or become someone else, we, wherever we find ourselves, we're wired up and trained and we'll find whatever's wrong with that situation and think we have to go somewhere else. Find something else, become someone else. It never ends. This is what the Buddha called samsara, the cycle, this wheel of ongoing looking, searching and not finding. Because we're looking really in the wrong way. So, what happened for me in that situation was that my closest friend, who I'd uh, grown up with and who, whose home was a home for me when my home sort of disintegrated in my late teens, and I stayed with him and his family, he had a surgical misadventure that over six months resulted in his coming to a point where he decided to disconnect the equipment that was just keeping him alive. He had no quality of life. It was a, a very understandable decision. He chose to die. And it was a deeply affecting and distressing and touching thing that he and I and we, his friends and family, went through with him where he just realized actually there's no point in an existence that had no ability for any quality of, of life. And it gave me a really important gift because what it said to me is don't wait. And this is, I'd been kind of thinking I, I want to quit the job that I have. I was in my early 20s by now. I want to go and see if there's something more to life than what I've found so far, which isn't doing it for me. But I was scared because I didn't have anything except this job and the, the money it gave me to survive on. There was no back, nothing behind me apart from that. And I was scared to go. But Radar, that's what we used to call him Radar, his death said to me really clearly, and I, I feel it as his, his last and in some ways as precious as any other gift he gave me in his life, was the sense of, do it now. Because there is no guarantee you'll get to do it later. And if what we're doing already isn't bringing us what we most deeply want, there's no guarantee that doing more of it or doing it better is going to. There really isn't. Mary Oliver, I think, speaks to this in her poem, which is one of my favorites, The Sunny Day. Sorry, the summer, sunny, the summer day. She writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? I mean, this one, who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is it that's most important for us, for you, that you might want to place more clearly in the center of your life and find ways for your life to work around that and not wait until your life reorganize itself to allow you to easily accommodate what's most important.
Because it doesn't often happen that way. So we're not, I'm not suggesting here you need to answer the questions, but to be open to be touched by these deeper questions. Like, what's my life really here for? What am I really interested in most deeply? What do I care about from the bottom of my heart? What do I want to give my life to? These are things we should contemplate while we still have the chance. And observe what we're doing while we're here. Have a look and see what goes on. Because what goes on here, as I've said, is what goes on in our life. But here we get to see it more clearly and in a way in which it's much harder to pretend we haven't seen it. Sometimes we see what's going on and we quickly look away. I didn't see that. I don't want to know what I know I'm doing. I just don't want to know. Because the implication of seeing it is I may have to step out into something unknown. Or uncomfortable if I'm to actually live with integrity, with nobility, with a sense of wholeness. So, in a sense, we might be engaging with the question so, what am I doing here? And of course, that question arises for us sometimes on a trip like, what on earth am I doing here, particularly here? And, you know, this experience that so often reported that someone's practicing and it's like body aches the mind sort of is all over the place and then when it's not all over the place it kind of goes flat and falls asleep and we think oh, i just wish i wasn't so sleepy and then as soon as i'm not sleepy my mind's all over the place i wish it would be quiet as soon as it's quiet i'm asleep again it's like oh, hard work hard work While we look around, it looks like everyone else is sitting so quietly, so still. And it's like, wow, they can all do it. They're all practicing meditation. And it's like there's me and it's like there's them. And there's like 50 almost fully awakened Buddhas and one seriously overcooked vegetable. <laughs> and it's like, that's how it is. We've somehow believed the stories we tell ourselves based on what's happening in the meditation. And in the end, really, to see that, to see, oh, that's something we tend to do. We tend to undermine, to not quite honor, to validate, to see that even the moment where you recognize that you were lost or asleep, that's the moment you're awakened. Before you recognized you were lost or asleep, it wasn't actually a problem. That's the curious thing. It's not actually a problem when we're really asleep, unconscious, because we don't even know we're unconscious. And in the moment we realize we're unconscious, we're not unconscious anymore. So we could say, huh, great, wow, I'm back. It's like the light came on. Now, the curious thing is I didn't turn it on because I wasn't there. By definition, I wasn't in the room. But the light came on, and here I am. Huh. Amazing how that works. Sometimes we might think we notice the light going out. We might feel like we did that. But turning it back on, we certainly can't claim that, can we? And so there's something mysterious that happens here too. We're not in control of what happens in the process of meditation, but the intentions and the dedication that we bring to this process of being here, that is part of what allows and enables, in a sense, the light to come back on. We're orienting towards that. We're supporting it. We're nourishing and encouraging it. And actually it starts to happen more. So there are moments where, oh, we realize I am present. There is a sensitive stable, aware possibility for this human being in which I'm just here, even for just a moment. And then I think, great, I've got it. I can do it. I can do it. I, oh, I just lost it. But that moment and what we do with it the first time, don't worry, because the next time it happens, you go, oh, that's right. I don't really need to grab hold of that thing. It doesn't work. It's like if we've been looking for water and we finally, someone offers us water and we try and grab it like that, we end up with no water. What we're starting to learn to do is open our palms in a sort of like a cupped, and I'm talking about inwardly, of course, 
just like to receive, to let the life pour in. And sure, it fills up and overflows. That's the nature of it. It doesn't stay. But we actually start to receive it, to feel it more deeply, to be touched by it. And we realize that we don't have to go somewhere else for that to happen. We don't have to do something else for that to happen. We don't have to be someone else for that to happen. But we do need to turn towards what is happening where we are. And that's really what we're practicing. Turning again and again towards, coming back into relationship with, establishing ourselves in an inner intention and commitment to this, to this, to this. Of course, what this is keeps changing, but it's to this, it's to this. That's what we're here for. Not my idea of what it's supposed to look like and I, shouldn't I be having some blissful transcendent experience by now? Or shouldn't I at least have solved those particular problems that I came here with and figured out what I'm going to do with the next 10 years of my life? No, that's not what we're here for. Some of that might come out of this, but what we're here for is this. This. We can't escape from this any more than we can escape from our mind. So if we recognize the tendency to try and escape from it and turn towards it, then suddenly the sense of kind of disconnect starts to resolve. We come back into relationship. We start to feel and know from the inside more fully what it is that's here that we call this that we could call that, as in the world, that we could call me, as in my experience, myself, or however we want to think of that. But it's all this, because we only know the world and our meeting of it. And we only know ourself and our meeting the world. Do you see how that works? We only know the world because we're meeting it. We only know ourselves because we're meeting the world. These things arise together. And if we start to trust more deeply that this way that they are appearing is here, not by random unfortunate accident, but because this is the place in which we can do the learning and the growing, the waking up, that we in the depth of our being, perhaps have a sense we want and need to do. So much of what we experience is as difficult, as painful, as unsatisfactory, as unfulfilling, as the, the deeper pain that comes not just from the fact that things are sometimes difficult, but from the way in which we feel somehow outside of it or separate, or disconnected from our life or existence, or disconnected from ourselves, isn't inherent in the difficult things we experience that lead us to disconnect. It's actually in the disconnection itself. It's that very process of pulling away, withdrawing, and contracting or hardening, either in a position of rejecting one thing or chasing another thing which is the basic sort of two sides of the coin of that expression of, we could say, non-satisfiedness, non-satisfaction, of leaning towards something other, leaning away from what is, from this that's here. And that very disconnect is actually at the heart of what is most painful and distressing to us. And counterintuitively, actually allowing ourselves to feel that and not try and avoid it is how we come back into relationship with our life. Not by avoiding the feeling of disconnect, but by ceasing to continue to act on it by repeating the habits of pushing away one thing and trying to grab hold of and keep another. And then life comes to us quite naturally, pours through us quite naturally. 
And this is something we can do. We can learn. We can become this place in which life is allowed to move, in which it can be known and felt, in which it can be honored and bowed to. And it can equally be in a, in a, in a somewhat sort of mysterious way it can be shaped not out of control and willpower but out of our infusing into the process what we can bring by way of care by way of courage by way of kindness by way of clarity by way of dedication of commitment of courage I think I said courage didn't I but many things that we actually bring so we start to switch the orientation from what am I getting from all of this which is how we tend to be sort of trained to relate to. What am I getting from my meditation? We might ask ourselves. And actually the question becomes, no, no, what am I giving to my meditation? Because that's where the difference is made. The quality of our life is much more informed by what we give to it than by what it gives us. And this is a radical and yet simple shift and reorientation that we might start to recognize as valid and as skillful for us. And so in this practice, we're learning to give attention, learn to offer space and kindness and allowance and interest and dedication to the process and being more interested in what can I give here than am I getting back from it the calm, peaceful, blissful, excited, liberated, fantastic, amazing, cosmic or whatever experience you were hoping for. Because whatever experience you might get here, of course it could be in that realm, it won't last forever and in itself it won't do it for you. Because experiences don't. They're nice when they're nice. They're difficult when they're difficult. And yet, the forming, the shaping, the growing, the maturing of the, the being, the heart and mind. And this is what the Buddha's teachings and what these practices are about. This heart and mind that is touched, that is affected, that is impacted by life and that responds to it can be transformed. This heart and mind, not seeing them as separate, they're woven deeply together, equally with the body heart, mind and body that is touched and that can respond. This can be transformed. And this transformation takes place in the very process we're engaged in. And this is the practice. I'd like to finish with a poem by Rio Khan, who's one of my favorite uh, poets and characters from the sort of the, the Buddhist uh, sort of world. He, he was a, uh, a Zen monk who lived in the uh, 17th, 18th century in Japan. And he lived in a little mountain sort of cabin, a little hermitage. And he was known for many things, including his... Uh, sort of taking time to play with the local children when other monks thought that was a little bit sort of too frivolous. But uh, anyway, this poem, he writes, The rain has passed, the storm has ended, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we come to rest in our life just as it is. May we come to rest in our experience just where it is. And may we come to rest in our hearts, just as it is. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the welfare of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.